This week on Trek Mary Kill, Cardassians files lies. Next. They say he butchered thousands. He commanded a forced labor camp. Now millions cry for justice. Let me know when you hang the Cardassian. But only one will stand against him. Look at the hate in her eyes. The war is over. How many Cardassians did you kill? We had no choice. But Kira's battle has just begun. He was there. He did it. On the next episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Trek, Mary, kill. Hi, I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to Trek, Mary, Kill, a podcast that will only survive if it stands in front of Bajor and admits the truth about Star Trek. This week, we continue <laughs> our two-hander theme month, and joining me for our own two-hander is writer Andrew Bloom, who has bylines at The Spool, Consequence, and Slash Film, along with many others. Uh, he's been writing about Star Trek for many, many years, too, and he's written about this week's episode we're going to talk about on his substack In Full Bloom. I'm excited to have him join me. Andrew, welcome. Thank you so much. Very pleased to be here, Brian, and very glad to get to talk about a really, I think two-hander is a great term for it, an excellent episode and one that requires all hands on deck, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how did you get into Star Trek or was there like a moment or even just an episode that made you fall in love with it? So the short answer is, is I basically inherited it like a lot of folks. Uh, my parents were very into the next generation. And so it's one of those shows that you could watch as a kid. There's certainly a lot that went over my head, but there's also a lot there that is still accessible and appreciable for kids who are coming at it. And so from there, you know, I, I didn't really have a sense for what was new and what was old, but watched all of 90s track through syndication, through various other sources, uh, and just found the kind of rich world and rich storytelling that is at play through so much of that era of Star Trek. So unbelievably inviting. Uh, the, the story I like to tell people is that when I got to college, I majored in politics and philosophy. And I think you know, it's obviously a big mix of many things, but I think a lot of that has to do with Star Trek. If you get through the spoonfuls and snootfuls of diplomacy and all of the moral thought experiments that Star Trek is just rife with, come away not having that at least a little bit on your brain. Uh, I'm not sure you've watched the same Star Trek I did. So it's, <laughs> it's certainly burrowed deep into my heart, into my mind, and is, is with me still today, obviously. You were like, what was the most probable course of study that Jean-Luc Picard took? And, uh, and politics <laughs> and history feels very close to that. Uh, it's, I mean, that's interesting that you say that. I feel like you'll you'll certainly bring a lot more to what we're about to discuss this week. Uh, Duet is the penultimate episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine's first season. It premiered in syndication June 13th, 1993. Teleplay by Peter Allen Fields from a story by Lisa Rich and Gene Kerrigan Fauci. Directed by James L. Conway. I wasn't able to confirm if Gene Kerrigan Fauci's spouse or if she herself is related to the the most famous Fauci in the United States, at least as we oh. record this. Uh, but I but I did note that this is her third and final contribution to Star Trek. Her other contributions <laughs> for for story was uh, liaisons from TNG's seventh season, an episode we hmm. we killed. Uh, and then <laughs> move along home from earlier in, deep, in season one of DS9. Oh, good. So an argument could be made that she is a contributing factor or partly responsible for both the best episode of Deep Space Nine and the worst. So, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody who watched Move Along Home, I'm sure they were like, man, we just got we got to get more of this. Let's get <laughs> see what, what they're capable of. Uh, I mean, we haven't done Move Along Home yet, though, and I think it being reviled is is, uh, you know, probably an easy thing to say. And I wonder if if you do like a critical review of it, does it really it's not as bad as Spock's brain, I got to imagine. That's my <laughs> thought of it. Um, Memory Alpha describes duet, though, that's the episode we're talking about as after a Cardassian man arrives on the station suffering from an illness that he only could have contracted at a Bajoran labor camp during the occupation, Major Kira leads an investigation to determine whether he is actually a notorious war criminal. Of course, the big twist in this episode is that it's actually a low-level functionary who worked at the labor camp and has lived his life racked with guilt. And so he poses as the notorious war criminal, Gold Darheel, going as far as getting cosmetic surgery to look like him in order to face justice, face the music. Someone has to be punished for these terrible crimes. Um, do you remember the first time you saw this episode? I don't really. You know, I, I definitely watched this as a kid as part of the general Deep Space Nine uh watches that I was doing. Uh, but I, I did a rewatch several years ago and it, it hit those little uh, tendrils in the back of your brain. Like that something is ringing a bell here, but I don't remember the first time seeing it other than that. How about you? Well, this is definitely, I mean, I'm basically, I think I'm 12 years old or so when this is on and the first season of deep space nine, the pilot's great. And I remember loving the pilot as a kid and I love it even more now, but there are definitely episodes of Star Trek where it's like there's too much talking. And so <laughs> and so even whatever it's like, there's a lot of talking. So I'm less interested. Where are the spaceships? Where are the, you know, the space shots and all that stuff? We didn't really get that in this one <laughs> or any sci fi stuff going on. Uh, I don't remember disliking it. I just, you know, there was a lot of stuff. You know, I'm like, I'm a kid. I don't have to like really weigh myself down thinking about it. But I remember very clearly going like this is a talky one. And then I do get it confused in my mind over the years. I've gotten it confused in my mind with the wire and sort sure. of like any of these talking to Cardassians in a room <laughs> episodes. I'm kind of, they were all kind of fuzzy, but now after rewatching it specifically for this show, I'm like, I'm locked in. Um, it's, it's a pretty remarkable episode. Uh, but here's where we can talk a little bit about your piece. You were very kind to, Send me in advance just so I had a little bit of a heads up. And I don't want to step on any of the stuff you talked about. Uh, this is a very important episode, not just for Star Trek Deep Space Nine, obviously, in its first season. Uh, but it's like one of those times where uh, maybe we can just talk about this. You know, f Star Trek usually focuses on human beings uh, on the final frontier, trying to better their understanding of, of ourselves, uh, existence, you know, really heady themes. And, and and having some agency, I would say, even in that. And here's an episode where it's sort of like two people, Kira and Maritza, basically not crushed, but, you know, they're sort of outmatched by by the world around them, that the world that they're in. And it's one of the weird times where they're just they're pretty powerless against some pretty hefty and and meaningful obstacles as heady mm -hmm. as existence and all that stuff. Um, but it was, it's like a very emotionally profound episode in a lot of ways. But before we get into the grades, I guess your kind of general thoughts without people should go read your piece. But like, what's your takeaway from this one after rewatching it? 
Uh, it's, it's very kind of you and appreciate the kind words there. And I, I completely agree. I think my my big takeaway here is is twofold. Number one, to your point, normally Star Trek is very much about characters taking action, about their ability to change the world in some way, to affect a situation, to make choices that really shape the galaxy or at least shape some part of it in some part, way, shape or form. And this is the rare instance in which events have already eclipsed both of our main characters. You have Kira, who is years after, you know, at least a year or two after the occupation at this point, still fighting the same battles, still trying to get justice for actions that have already taken place. And at the same time, you have Maritza doing the same thing, feeling powerless in the shadow of this immense unfathomable wrong atrocity that has been brought down upon the heads of a people perpetrated by his people trying to take some small step to reconcile to atone um, and in the way that this is more about how people are affected by events than how they are able to change them marks it as very unique within the star trek canon so i think it, it's powerful if only for how it diverges from the way things normally happen on these shows uh, and likewise, I'm I'm very impressed at how the uh, Peter Allen Field structures the episode, and likewise how he is able to play with not just the characters' emotions and expectations, but the audiences. You know, it's it's sort of built into these three sections. You have at first Kira thinking she has captured some low-level functionary, and you have uh, the question of whether or not somebody who is a file pardon me file clerk at a forced labor camp should be held responsible for all of the crimes there. And then what if you did capture an Adolf Eichmann? What if you did capture the commandant who is in charge, who is the author of so much death and destruction? You know, what counts as justice there? And what is the shock to realize that you found this person? Use them to help get some catharsis, some relief, some sense of justice. And then that final twist of the knife, that final turn where she realizes that you know the person that she has been sacrificing justice to get vengeance upon is in fact somebody seeking the same thing, seeking to uh, extinguish his guilt, to give his people a chance to atone and make recompense for the harms that they have caused in the hope that there can be a way forward. Uh, it, it's just such a, a beautiful tripartite structure that really plays with your emotions, that really gets you to feel what these characters are feeling, whether it's anger whether it's shock, whether it's glee, whether it's terror, and ultimately whether it's some kind of transcendent or profound feeling about, pardon me, tragedy or a way forward. Uh, so to be able to pull that off in 44 minutes with a couple of amazing actors is is no small feat. Uh, I've, I've rewatched this episode multiple times, and I think it still hits as hard each time, which is an achievement. In itself. But, I totally agree. Uh, I mean... <laughs> This is something for our most of its time quality, but I, I feel compelled to talk a little bit about it here. I mean, every part of the Bajoran, you know, the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, any of this stuff about terrorism, freedom fighters, like at the time it was written, it had a certain sort of resonance that historically a lot of that stuff has continued on and evolved in a way that now I, I guess it hits different is maybe one way of looking <laughs> at it, but it's sort of like, it's hard to watch this episode and not, hmm. I feel like the idea of like, if people were watching it today, trying to hold it to today's thoughts and values, does the episode a disservice in some way? Because I think the intentionality of it is very reflective of its time, 
But I guess I'm saying all that to say it still packs a wall up when you think about what's going on in the world today, uh, especially in the area of the world where this, you know, Israel and Palestine, I'm not trying to shy away from it, but like it's all there. And obviously more of the but the occupation is more much more about, you know, this is effectively Auschwitz, the, mm. the Bajoran version of that. So it is a little bit different, but then you've got to there is a Michael Pillar wasn't, you know, trying to. Um, hide from it. It was all kind of blurred in in a way, and there is some of that there. I think the Maquis storyline more strongly plays on Israel-Palestine, but it is hard to kind of think about um, to detach it from the moment it was being watched in. So it reverberated for me, maybe in, in even strong, more strongly than it would have even a few months ago if I had rewatched it. But I do want to say I was doing some Nuremberg trials reading about this one. And I guess there's a there's an argument to be made that even the file clerk, the just following orders thing, he's not technically an officer. You know, he was still abetting crime, right? Murder. Yeah. He could be tried in just their civilian court. It didn't necessarily have to be a tribunal. So it is kind of a weird, not necessarily weird, uh, because it's the emotional crux of the story. I guess the even in the fake reality of the 24th century, there is an argument to be made like, well, he could have still stood trial, you know? So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's, that's one of the interesting things about the episode, right? Is because it's clear that this person has committed some crime, right? I mean, I, I guess I don't want to say it's clear, but I think there is a presentation in the episode itself that suggests he, uh, Maritza is complicit in what happened and he acknowledges that. And that's part of why, he is trying to atone in this admittedly, you know, somewhat convoluted in Byzantine way, but also a very sincere and earnest way. Um, but I think part of what gives the episode power is the distance between what he has done versus what is pinned on him by people who have understandably suffered, who are understandably very hungry for justice. And so in some ways puff up a, a file clerk into Goldar heel even before he tries to do that himself. I think it, I, it feels that, yep. Star Trek to me, right? Yep, exactly right. Um, I I did have a thought because I guess I was imagining what the modern complaints about this episode would be about how convoluted this all is, the cosmetic surgery, and then just like creating the situation where he's pretending to be basically himself. You know what I mean? To like lead yeah. them on this path. And I'm saying like it's all theatrical because that's what Cardassians do. And I think uh, any criticism of like it's too much. And I'm not saying you're criticizing him. I'm the episode. I'm just saying like this is the way it had to be because it's a television program of drama. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like if it's it's one thing like the the boring uh, legal TV show version is he gets cosmetic surgery. He shows up at their front door and announces who he is. And now it's about everyone trying to figure out what to do with him. You know what I mean? Like that's mm -hmm. the that's the thing I think a lot of people would want, quote unquote, from a premise like this. But if you do it this way, it's just more interesting. That's the whole reason why they did it this way. <laughs> and, and not for nothing, you know, it Lord knows from uh, the the trouble with Tribbles, we have a long history of characters getting elaborate cosmetic surgery in the franchise. And I think that's it's right. one of those things where the the amount of willing suspension of disbelief that I am willing to extend not just an episode of Star Trek, but an episode of anything, 
rests on how good all of the other elements are. So if you have absolutely powerhouse performances hitting some really potent themes in a really effective way, yeah, I'm willing to hand wave away that things have to go pretty perfectly for this to work out the way that Maritza intended it to. And there's just no way he could have foreseen how this all spills out. But it's good drama, <laughs> it's good uh, excitement, and it's good Star Trek at the end of the day. So just before we get into the grades, a couple of specific things about the making of this episode, uh, the plot of the episode inspired by Robert Shaw's 1967 stage play, The Man in the Glass Booth, which tells of a Jewish man accused of being a Nazi war criminal. Leonard Nimoy started a production of this play uh, before six, uh, at somewhere between 67 and when Duet aired. I'm not sure. And that play, in turn, is based on factual Events that took place after World War II, Nuremberg trials, obviously, you made, mentioned Adolf Eichmann, uh, and it was Michael Piller who said that Ira Bear is the one who came up with that idea. Ira Bear also cited this episode as the first example of the so-called Long Cardassian monologue. Cardassians <laughs> love to speak, Garrick loves to speak, and Aubrey Tain loves to speak, Ducat loves to speak very slowly, and certainly Maritza loves to speak. Now, that quote actually comes from the Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine Companion, which is what Memory Alpha is pulling from. And listeners who know I've been trying to get my hands on this, I finally did. So I'm going <laughs> to... So Andrew just yeah, made me very happy to get it. But I had to go back and look at that full quote. And I just want to say, like, Peter Allen Fields, who Kristen and I have talked about, like, is sort of maybe in, because he passed away now, and I think he retired even before he... he long before he died. Um, he's an unheralded writer. Maybe uh, doesn't get enough credit for being uh, as good of a writer as he was for Star Trek and had, had a very colorful life. Um, I think you can go check out our first episode, uh, The Circle. I think that was the one we talked about him. Anyway, um, so he wrote this episode, but he was writing it with uh, Ira Bear basically in his office. <laughs> Ira Bear said, I gave as fine a performance as Harris Ulin up in Pete's office. We would go into these long monologues and stand and rant and scream. And actually a lot of it word for word is in there. Um, and Fields said that uh, I'd be less than fair if I didn't say that without Iris contribution, particularly in Maritza's reactions. I don't think I could have tricked it out like that. That was his line. Oh, He's man. even a good quote. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> what I wouldn't give to be a fly on the wall for that. I know Ira Bear being like, because they were clean. You're like, just <laughs> doing that whole speech would have been really something. Um, and of course, Maritza slash Goldar Heel slash Maritza is played by Harris Ulin, a longtime character actor in films and TV and Broadway and other theater. Uh, regrettably, Freddie, longtime Ulin heads out there. Uh, I know him best from the role as the judge in Ghostbusters too. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's the first time I encountered him and that's... That it's forever stayed in my mind that he's the judge. Uh, do you remember that scene? <laughs> I do remember that scene. I watched that movie not too long ago as a New Year's movie, which there are not many of. So I'm glad <laughs> that his legacy lives on each holiday season. He's still with us. He's 86. He dated Faye Dunaway for a year. What a guy. Wow. wow. <laughs> but, uh, oh, my God, the Scolari brothers. Sorry. That's <laughs> burned in my mind. Uh, this episode also introduced the character of Neela, who wanna, went on to play a crucial role in the next episode in the season finale. They had it was like a whole storyline about the writers were trying to get this character established earlier so that her mm -hmm. betrayal felt more like a twist and uh, didn't quite work out. So really, it's just she gets these two lines in this episode and then she's in the next one. Um, and I, 
I have to say, seeing her in this one, I was like, who is that? And then I remembered <laughs> that I don't remember in the Tears of the Prophet all that clearly because uh, as again, as a 12 year old boy, I was like, she's so pretty. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's good. It's, she was just in that little moment could distract you from the episode. <laughs> well, it, it does feel like such a random scene to where I, I think it reading this was like, oh, yeah, of course, that's what they were doing. But when you're watching it at the time, you're like, okay, was this something that they had already set up that they were paying off previously? Because it seems like such a extraneous part of the episode that you almost think maybe they were running short at some point and just added a scene for character. Yeah. And if you think about what the scene is, O'Brien and Neela are working on basically installing Photoshop into Dax's station. <laughs> Which, in my mind, I'm like, I guess I could see a version where, like, the Cardassian ops, they don't prioritize that stuff. And so the whole gimmick of the first season has been O'Brien making ops more like the bridge of a starship that mm. can do basically anything you want. Like, that's me trying to justify the reality of the world. But you're right. That scene is just weird. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> we've got to magnify and enhance. We've got all that stuff going on. That's funny. Uh, but let's talk about the grades. Uh, let's get into those starting. Oh, was there any uh, any specific thoughts, any production thoughts or little things you wanted to mention that didn't fit into a grade? Otherwise, we'll move on. The only other thing I will mention is that I, I think it's completely fair for Ira Bear to talk about this as a part of long, proud tradition of big Cardassian monologue episodes. But I think you also <laughs> have to to think through chain of command from Next Generation, which is... Picard being tortured by a Cardassian all his own and is, I think, cut very much from the same cloth of these big debates about what a just society is and what is the right treatment of people from other cultures um, that I think starts that tradition in a way that Duet carries proudly, but probably didn't start the fire, so to speak. Oh, good call. Good call. Uh, I'm sure Ira Bear is like, after I left T uh, TNG, it was dead to me. So I just can't even... <laughs> Can't even con contemplate that. All right, let's get into the grades, starting with great scenes. And Andrew, if you'd please, uh, was the first scene you thought was really great? So I think I, one of the scenes I appreciate really early on is Kira asking Cisco to let her handle this, despite Cisco's understandable reservations. Uh, I, I think you know one of the things that is particularly striking about this is it, it has shades not just of. Uh, war tribunals and uh, things along those lines after the Holocaust, but also, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and the idea about mm -hmm. what peoples who have been victimized need, how, what part they need to play in trying to achieve justice in order to feel like it has been achieved. So I think Cisco hearing her, trusting her, even against you know, some reservations that he has and balancing those things out really stands out as a, you know, one, one of the key themes of this first season of Deep Space Nine, Cisco and Kira coming together, learning to respect each other, learning to bond with one another. It's it's a, a very much subsidiary point of this episode, I think, but a potent one nonetheless. I totally agree. I thought it was a, a powerful scene and I think maybe I'll save some of those lines for later on in our other grades, but um, yeah, she's, I think the it, the whole thing hinges on the whole episode really hinges on. I give you my word. I will conduct myself accordingly. You know, make, she's making a promise to her friend that she's going to work very hard to, you know, let her anger drive her, obviously, but try to pull this off in a way that no one's going to question that justice is being served. Right. That's the entire yeah. point. 
I don't know. It just it's not a scene they could have done if this had been uh, Lieutenant Rowe in the in the position as they originally intended, because she wouldn't have been part of the the freedom fighters, I don't think. So Kira brings a whole different history to it. It's also the really uh, the first scene where you can really feel that Nana visitor is on one in this one that she's. Yeah, this is going to be like a triple double performance for her. <laughs> like she's going to really bring it. Um, yeah, I totally agree. It's it's a really nice scene. I actually liked the scene. There's a scene before that um, where Cisco, Kira and Odo are in the security office and they're discussing what's going on. Um, and she she uh, says um, she explains the Kalanora thing. There's a syndrome that happened mm. because of a mining accident at the camp. If you're just listening, and you didn't watch the episode. So anyone who has this condition was at this labor camp and that's it. Um, and but Kira liberated and she can't shake what she saw there. And it all comes flooding back. Right. She's just like really upset. She's like the, the bodies and how they were treated. And she's very emotional and very upset. And then, uh, it's very powerful there in that own mind you in, in its own way. And you get the weight of what's going on here. And Cisco's like, I'm going to go talk to him. And then (laughs) it ends with kind of a joke where she kind of like wipes her tears away. And she's like, I'll come with you. (laughs) (laughs) And Cisco's very gracious. He's like, I'll handle this. But it it was pretty funny in the moment where it's like, no, no, I've laughed every time in the rewatch. I'm like, no, not appropriate after that. (laughs) Maybe Uh, not on this one. Yeah. Uh, Any other great scenes? I mean, there's certainly more, but go, go ahead. I was going to say, well, to add to what your point, I love the transition between Kira coming, thinking she's going to see one of the survivors of the the labor camp. And then boom, she sees it's, it's Maritza instead. And just Mm -hmm. that the, the performance from visitor is so good. The, the change from admiration to shock and anger is, is really, really well done. Uh, But you know, other other scenes that are great. <laughs> Basically, every conversation between Kira and Maritza. I, you know, I, I, I don't think yeah. there's a single one I would would throw back if that makes sense. No, exactly. Well, the the third one was maybe not as strong as the other three. Um, the third one is the one where he's asking her questions, which uh, it, and but that is an important scene, I think, and so maybe it should be a great scene. But I guess there's a lot of it gets really high tension, high pressure in all the, in the three other scenes, the first three, the first one is where he's insisting he's just a filing clerk, but it ends with that drunk uh, Bajoran guy waking up the one who would kill him at the end. And he's like, Oh no, get me out of here. And it's like, so he's hearing the screams of a Bajoran right across from him. And it's like, it's a very tense scene. The second one is, uh, this is after the reveal that he has the face of dark and then that's where we get the whole, I did what had to be done. And you know, I send them out to kill Bajorans. They come back blo- covered in blood, but they felt clean. And he's really wow. going for it. He's going for the rafters and she's trying to process all this. You know, acting actors don't get enough credit for listening because yep. it's very easy when you're nervous or you're just trying to get it right, that you're just holding to say your lines. But the best acting is in stillness and listening and both of them are just amazing. It's very, very well done on, on both their parts. I'll have a moment to talk about the non-visitor in a little bit here, but 
But the third, so the one scene I thought was maybe not quite as good, but is still very important is the scene where he's basically trying to pin her down saying like, well, you killed civilians, right? The most effective Mm -hmm. part of terrorism is all that. And she's like, I did what had to be done. And I think that's trying to create this emotional, and your piece touches on this a little bit. It's the trying to create the emotional parallel or understanding between them that they were both in their own way, sort of doing jobs that they had to do parts of it that they didn't like. And I, that's why it's there. You need that scene for the end, for the final resolve, the final scene where he has the breakdown and, and she lowers the, the force field and talks to him. And, and under, there's an understanding that gets reached. That's why the scene's in there. It's just not as good. That's all. <laughs> so, you're right. You're right. Everyone should just watch those scenes. They're good. <laughs> it's true. And I think there's also part of that where he's goading her to some degree. He wants yes. to, to hit her where it hurts so that she'll hit him where it hurts, uh, perhaps literally. And so it's it's, you know very direct in that way. But at the same time, to your point, I think it's necessary to move the story along and just, there's so much pure gold in this. If something is pure silver or vice versa, it's hard to to complain about it too much. You know, there's just precious metals everywhere. (laughs) It's true. There's gold, (laughs) platinum all over the place. Yeah. I I mean, in a way it's kind of like, it's a little too neat. It's a little too pat how this resolves, not the, the, murder at the end although that i guess you could say that too more so i guess i'm getting at like there there are definitely going to be people who maybe think it's a bit false that kira so quickly reverses on him but i don't Mm. i think the episode as written actually lays it out pretty clearly as like i she tells cisco i promise she doesn't say i promise but she is making a promise like i'm going to be, I'm going to do this for my people and I promise I'm going to be obje- objective about it. And I think she arrives at the conclusion of like, his death does not help my people. Yeah, I think that's and exactly I, right. Oh, sorry, go ahead. And I, no, and so I think she just arrives at that point and that's why that last line of the episode, you know, the guy says he's a Cardassian, that's reason enough why he killed him. And she says it's not. Like, I think that she had to go through all that. To, she's not starting at that place. She's ending no. at that, at that thought. And uh, that's very Star Trek. So it at is. the end of the day, it works. No, I feel like one of the biggest themes, not just in deep space nine, but across the whole franchise is seeing the other in more depth, seeing them as real people and reaching that understanding through hard fought prejudices that have to be pushed through uh, to develop that more, well-rounded perspective on what somebody else is and can be. And, you know, more than, I, I think it's one of the continuing arcs for Kira across the the scope of the series that she more than anybody walks in thinking the only good Cardassian is a dead Cardassian. And over time starts to have this, this understanding that they all contain multitudes in the same way that the Bajorans do. And so to see somebody who is not just any Cardassian, but somebody who is a part of this horrible historical crime that she is ready to, you know, almost kill herself if she could. And then to see that instead of being this villain, she's created in her mind, he is somebody seeking to get the same kind of justice. She wants Uh, not just vengeance, but justice, not just for himself, but for his people and acknowledgement of the wrongs that are at the root of her anger it, it expands her mind. And I don't think that expansion, that epiphany has meaning if it doesn't start with that place of anger 
and prejudice and justified righteous indignation that somebody like him can walk around breathing air when so many innocent people can't. Which is, I think, a point that she makes with Odo, right? She's like, how many of Mm -hmm. him are wandering around out there? And Odo's like, probably a lot. Um, Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Best Trek tropes. What do you have? So I, I, it's kind of broad to be a Trek trope, but I do think there is the uh, I'm talking to multiple diplomatic officials by view screen to try to navigate this thorny <laughs> diplomatic situation. That is, is very much what Cisco is doing there. And, and to a lesser extent, Odo. Uh, and so I think there is something very. A lot of view screen conversations in this one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's a good one. Know, it's a trope, but it's one that I enjoy. So I'm not going to complain about it. I'm going to start small and then build up to my big one, which I only have three, but Cardassian speechifying, which Ira Bear pointed out. Thank you, Ira Bear. Sure. Uh, the, this may not actually be a Trek trope, but yours is more than this one. But I'm going to say it anyway because of my diseased Star Trek brain, I thought of it. That is, they've seen my face. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like... It seems it's it seems weird that in a in a future with warp drives and like immediate identity scans that it still requires like a picture or someone remembering what someone looked like as the solve. <laughs> so like there's a shade of the conscience of the king here with Anton Caridian slash oh, yeah. uh, Kodos the Executioner. But there's also do you remember uh, the vengeance factor from T- TNG? where there's a, a bunch of tribes that are, there's that woman with the poison hand, then she can touch oh, the uh, yeah, other, yeah. other gang members to kill them all off. And then Riker sees the file photo of her, like going in the court. And she's like, this picture was taken 53 years ago and she has an age today. Like that kind of <laughs> stuff. Uh, and a very what? similar thing. So yeah, exactly. So I don't know. It's kind of a vague trope, but then this one is a deep space nine trope. And it's a part they got away from, and I wish, I wish, I wish they had stuck with it longer. But Quark having a thing for Kira. It's mm-hmm. in the episode yeah. uh, because he gives Odo the Moraltian sea veil from his private stock. And so there's no mm-hmm. way like Odo didn't tell him what was going on. Like, Quark, do you have anything for an upset stomach? Because Kira, the implication in that scene, right, is that she was puking her guts out after yeah. that confrontation. She was sick to her stomach with that and and so Odo is like trying to soothe her so he and Odo's not a liar so he probably just went to Quark and said uh maybe not told him the whole thing but like it's upsetting talking to that uh Cardassian and Quark was like this will help her and that's because he's got a thing for her so I respect that good job Quark (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like that goes out the window once you have his I'm going to get an image of her in the holodeck kind of deal. I feel like that's the last hurrah. They couldn't come back from that. So they, yeah, they keep him focused on Dax from, from then on. All right. Worst Trek tropes. So I don't know if this is a Trek trope so much as it's a CSI trope, though I think it certainly <laughs> has its root here. But the, the sort of technology as magic, the image enhancement can apparently work their way around people blocking others. Uh, you know, it'd be one, I, I, I laugh at always this, the thing where you have a very blurry photo and they just say, can't we refine that? And then boom, you know, there's there's enough information in there to be able to do that. But they literally move the camera around so you can see Gold Darheel, pardon me, Gold Darheel, despite the fact that he was standing behind somebody else in this two dimensional photo. So we're just going well, to. Enhance they did do AI, Yeah, they did do AI upscaling, though, on that one on the one picture. That's, That's fair. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, that's funny. The, how do they do that? That's more than technology. That's just straight up magic. That might be it's true. <laughs> I don't know if this counts as good or bad, but definitely a, a deep space nine trope. Cardassians love yamak sauce. Like every Cardassian <laughs> eating food is using yamak sauce or asking for yamak sauce. I don't know why, but that's, that's the only sauce that Cardassians like. Which I mean, is it like barbecue sauce? Is it like Cholula hot sauce? Like what it could be? We'll never know. I think, isn't it yellow? I have some vague, in my head, it's like Cardassian honey mustard, but I could be pulling that from nowhere. Well, then in that case, that self-explanatory, whether it's ranch (laughs) or honey mustard, put it on everything, sure. There you go. Yeah, perfect. Uh, I guess I'm going to say Quark looking at the survivors of the Galactep labor camp huddled outside of Mm -hmm. Odo's security office, wondering if this Golder Heel is going to come out or if they can get at him. I wonder if him asking Odo, do they like to, do you think they like to gamble? Ah, <laughs> it's like it, well, when you see Quark in that moment, you're, it's basically that Simpsons meme of waiting for him to say the line. And it's like, <laughs> what, what stupid uh, profit motive driven thing is Quark about to say? And, and there we go. I will say it's not like, a, it's not an awful, objectively awful thing he said. It's just like, okay. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> do we need this? Yeah, did we need this? Also, at the same time, though, it's like it's weird when Quark isn't in an episode, and uh, and if it if he had only been referenced for providing the sea veil, then maybe that would have been enough. But yeah, I don't know. It was weird. He's he's not, not Jake weird. Cisco. You can't just get rid of him for six episodes yeah, and nobody's gonna right. notice. Well, there's a version of this episode where like not the B story. It's good that this episode doesn't have a B story, but you could imagine there's a moment where Jake is asking. Ben Cisco about this, like trying to wrap his yeah. head around it as a kid. Like you could see that happening, and I'm glad they didn't do that. But you know that that's in there. It's, no, that's true. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, that <laughs> I, I jest because I I think the show put um, Sirak Lofton in the main cast and then decided not to use him. But there's plenty mm-hmm. of opportunities to use him across the whole show that they could have gone for. Uh, for whatever yeah. reason, they decide it's totally fine to have an episode without Jake, but we can't do an episode without Quark. So. um most of its time quality Uh, so i'll go first here i i would say that the deliberation the delay to justice instead of the rush to justice (laughs) rush to judgment that felt very much of its time there was a lot of cisco going now hold on (laughs) like now like to the (laughs) point to the point of like just a standstill almost so i don't know it just felt like uh, that was part of it. I don't know. What else do you have? Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's, and you see it in both uh, Next Generation and Voyager. There's a certain like, let's not uh, innocent until proven guilty. Let's make sure we observe the rule of law. Like it's a very important foundational value to 90s Trek. So I think that's that definitely comes out. Um, you know, I don't know if this is an of its time quality, but despite everything, uh, Maritza's rockin' Cardassian mullet feels like one of those <laughs> Star Trek hairstyles that like they, they didn't entirely get away from, but they're a little more like cropped and a little smoother up to that point. But that is that is definitely one of those like early nineties Star Trek do's that you don't get later. Yeah. Uh the lack of DNA is maybe mm. my thing. This might have been right on the cusp of when it was old fashioned and not have DNA. Like it might have just been produced in that one last second before you're like well what about dna you know for every storyline because yeah. even later seasons of of all the star treks it's like 
oh, they breathed in this room. Let's do a DNA scan. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was all over the place. So a DNA scan and a verification would have definitely been in the writer's minds for this one. And then you would have had no story. So I wonder if you just because the age of the writers involved, the the culture at the time, if it just wasn't like in the forefront of their mind, the episode does find like it dancing around that. That's like not an issue. But now looking back, it's like, oh, a DNA scan would have patched this up real fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it, to pin a, a fig leaf on it, I think it may be that, you know, for it to be a DNA match, they would have to have either Darheel's or Maritza's DNA to compare it to. And, it, you know, it really takes Odo leaning on Gold Ducat and bringing some of these events to bear to even get the Cardassian files to you know, verify his identity through other means. I don't know how quickly Ducat would be willing to turn turn over uh, Gold Darheel's DNA to the Federation. Oh, you know what? This is a bummer to the point where I almost want to cut it back in. But I'll just say it this way. Oh, that reminds me. I did not mention that the Odo and Ducat scene. Oh, <laughs> it's a yeah. great scene. It's a really <laughs> great scene. I think I, I got distracted by all the monitor conversations, but you know, it's that scene between Odo and Gold Ducat starts with Gold Ducat lying, which is what mm -hmm. he does best. He's like, <laughs> I do miss working with you, Odo. I've missed our games of Kelvin and Montar. And Odo says, as I recall, Gold Ducat, we played one game and you cheated. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing but also yes and it's like the bureaucratic process like dealing with russia of like you're trying to embarrass us and odo's like well if you give us access to the files it'll make it easier for us to not embarrass you <laughs> and it's like just the reasoning it out was a was a fun moment and uh it's i would imagine it's very hard or it can be very easy to make those scenes fall flat the actors mm -hmm. are not playing off of each other 99% of the time, there's certainly been some uh, times where that hasn't been the case, but you know, you're shooting, you know, Ren Rene Bourgeois is talking to a script uh, supervisor um, yeah. and he's on the, on, in a chair and that person is not giving a performance at all. So it's, <laughs> it's tremendous like to really hold the weight and make it feel real. Not to be too grandiose about it, but I also think it plants the seeds for something you see a lot with Ducat throughout the rest of the series, which is Ducat sees these people as his friends, people who respect him, people who are his old buddies. And yes, we're at odds now and again, but but deep down we we get along. And Odo is just having none of it. The, <laughs> the asymmetry between how Ducat sees himself and how others see him is just uh, this incredible chasm that I think speaks to Ducat's psychology throughout the show. But I think this is this is the barest beginnings of it rather than a firm start. Oh, I like that. That's that's right there. I think you're right. All right. Back to most of its time. Um, I kind of think the notion of Kira being able to set aside all of her trauma and be objective I think it's very Star Trek-y, though, that she can't do it without the help of her friends. It's not like she's like completely perfect in all this. And, yeah. you know, Cisco and Odo are helping her, right? They're not resisting her. They're like, they're not saying Cisco has the one moment where he's like, hold on, Major, when she's like, let's arrest him at the very beginning. But in that scene where they're presenting her with new facts that they've discovered and she's like, that's a lie, that's fake. They're not like pushing back on how she's behaving. They're just yeah. like, it's a steady stream. They're just trying to be supportive. I think if this was written now, it would be a lot more. You would do the melodramatic, the attempt for profundity of like a flashback or 
she'd hear the screams or whatever. You know what I mean? Like they try to make it even more than what it is. Sometimes you just got to let these actors cook, baby. You just got (laughs) to let them go. You got to let it play on their face. You got to let just things hang in the air in real life. There's no flashbacks. There's no cutaways. You know what I mean? Like the drama is in the moment. Um, so I just think it might, this episode might've gone about a little differently if done today, but I think you even see deep space nine itself do that just a few seasons later, uh, in the episode with her surrogate Cardassian father, where, who she finds out has a troubling past that implicates her biological father. And they do do mm-hmm. a bunch of flashbacks to young Kira that are a little more melodramatic and a little more on the nose. So I think even at this time, it speaks to who is in charge of the episode, what did the script look like, what were they hoping to do? Um, and you can sort of see those changes in real time. Now it's time for the line must be drawn here. Great lines. <laughs> this was a tough one because there are it's an incredibly well-written script. And it's so I guess we could just in one way just keep quoting a bunch from it. But I actually feel like there's so much pain in the dialogue it's like mm-hmm. what what makes it great is being witness to it and experiencing it. And there's kind of like a fun. This grade is more like for fun in a way. And I don't <laughs> I just didn't I don't feel very compelled to say a lot of the lines in there. It's it's kind of deeply upsetting. Maritza saying what you call genocide. I call a day's work. And obviously he's trying to get under her skin. But I, there's no question there are people who kind of feel that way. And also, let's not forget, this is like after A Few Good Men. So there is a version of Harris Eulin where he's channeling Nicholson yeah. um, in this whole performance and being very big. Um, any great lines you want to point out? I think very much in that same vein. There's a few from the stretch where... Maritza is trying to goad Kira. She's tr- he's trying to get her dander up and make her understand exactly what a monster Darheel was in some ways. Um, and so the, the two ones that stood out to me were uh, Kira says, you'll pay for that death and all the others you're responsible for. And Maritza says, oh, I don't think I can pay for them all, Major. There were so many and you can only execute me once, which is just such a taunt, is just such a a big thumb in her eye, even though he's behind a force field. Uh, And likewise, when he says to her, don't you see it doesn't change anything? Kill me, torture me, it doesn't matter. You've already lost, Major. You can't undo what I've accomplished. The dead will still be dead. And if that doesn't just, I think, sum up, if not the, the perspective that the show is fighting against in some way, but the idea that these crimes have happened and there's no way to move past them. I think that's the best one line encapsulation of that perspective that the show is at least grappling with, even if not completely subduing. Yeah. And I mean, she does have, she holds the line a little bit where earlier she had said, you know, well, we did get rid of you. Like she is (laughs) (laughs) and he's kind of pushing against that the whole time. Uh, I liked her moment, the the moment between she and Cisco that I've mentioned many times where she says, I owe it to them. Cisco says, you mean the victims? And she says, that's right. The ones who move too slowly and never moved again. I'm asking for all the Bajorans who can't ask. Let a Bajoran do this. I mean, every line is just crushing. It's yeah. it's incredible. Nana Visitor said she actually had a like a very actorly line she says i came away different from this episode with a different perspective i grew up in new york city and racism is a subject that i'm familiar with but i never had to deal with it in any real way 
I, this was kind of maybe a more, I should have mentioned it more of its time. So she's thinking about racism, right? She's thinking about like, just because you're a Cardassian and the Cardassians did terrible things to us, does that mean we should seek vengeance on all Cardassians? That's the vision she's playing from. And it's almost like that doesn't, there's more to it than that. If you think about this episode through the lens of today, you know what yeah. I mean? Like it's yeah. not just that. And that's why this episode is like really, it's not like tricky. It's just like for me personally, the way I'm experiencing it now is really uh, weird. It's different, but um, her, you can feel everything she's doing. She's not acting. Mm. You know what I mean? Like the novice has moments through, even in this episode, I think mainly in that scene where they're presenting her with all these new facts about, well, it's impossible that this is Goldar heel. Goldar heel wasn't there the day of the accident, all this other stuff. She's kind of doing her head acting, her little her soap opera dramaticness a little bit, <laughs> but the other scenes she's she is a completely different person, a, a different version of this character than we've ever seen before, and it's almost like when Nana Vizzer playing Kira in this moment to Cisco is swearing that she's gonna do right. It's like you can see the character is changing as well, like it's very real the ch- changing. So I, I really liked it. Uh, I have a, a fun line. The episode oh, starts, I almost put this as a great scene, but it doesn't actually like do anything dramatic. It just sets up the the plot, but it's just, it's fun to start an episode with. Kira says, we never cared what we did as long as it annoyed the grownups. That's the first <laughs> line of the episode. She and Dax are just talking about when they were little shits as kids. Uh, and, and in between some jargon is going on. And Dax says, I was a champion window breaker on a dark night with a few rocks. I was deadly. And then Kira's like noticing that Dax maybe isn't being totally honest with her. And she's like, well, which one of you are you talking about? Which I thought was a was a clever response there. Yeah, you get those opening two minutes and you're like, this episode is going to be light and a lot of fun. <laughs> and then it is. That's right. Uh, any other great lines? You know, like... Uh, same answer for great scenes. Basically yeah. all of them in the conversation between Kira and Maritza. So I got to highlight this one as well, because I think this is something that is really important. Uh, Maritza says, Cardassia will only survive if it stands in front of Bajor and admits mm. the truth. And yeah. you talked about the reconciliation and all that. I, there is so much power in an admission, right? And, mm-hmm. and just standing and facing the music, I guess, is probably the the most basic way of explaining it, but affirming a reality is very powerful for people to people who have been wronged. Yes, I did this. Yes, this happened. Yes, we were responsible. Um, I think it's, I think because deep down every person knows this, that's why there's such a fight to always deny it. You bring up reparations in the United States, you're going to get some really vile and intense reactions to this, those types of things. Just acknowledging that bad things happened and that you did them is such a big deal that uh, obviously uh, just hearing it in the television show doesn't matter what year, you know, like in the 90s, all that stuff. Um, And as a kid and a lot of kids watch Star Trek, that's how most people get into it. I think these are powerful messages to put in there, I think. And they're almost apolitical. I mean. Uh, any any expression of art is probably a little is political in some way, but you know, tell the truth and be honest and accept the consequences. Seems like pretty basic morality and Star Trekness as well. Yeah, and I think 
it's one of those great Star Trek things where it's rooted in something specific, but gets at something universal through that. And the yes. idea of being forthright and upfront about your mistakes, especially from the Cardassians, who, at least as we see through Gold Ducat, have spun this idealized version of the occupation um, to be to have somebody who sees the only path forward, not just for Bajor, but for Cardassia to not only acknowledge the crimes, but hold themselves to account for it, I think has such strength, uh, both as an idea to the universe of Star Trek, but also, like you said, to this inherent universal moral truth about when we have committed wrongs, be they grave or small, how do we atone for them in some way, shape or form? Yeah. And they're not Captain Kirk on the bridge of the Enterprise saying like, we're going to broadcast the truth to the whole planet and then you're <laughs> going to have to deal with it. We're going to do it for you. Right. That's the difference this time around. Um, all right. So the Anton Caridian Award for best performance, since you're the guest and I'm a coward, you go ahead. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm probably going to uh, maybe go outside of Star Trek for this one. There, When uh, Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott won the Rookie of the Year award, he asked if he could saw it in half and give the other half to his running back, Zeke Elliott. So if I could saw this award in half and give one to, to Harris Yellen and one to Nana Visitor, I absolutely would because they are both such powerhouses here. I mean, for... For the Maritza to step into this show, not be familiar with, you know, the the universe and the world and give this big, gigantic performance, it would be so easy for it to go awry. And instead, there's just such conviction in every single word he says. Uh, the moment where he is trying to really go over the top when Kira has found him out and then breaks down in tears once he he sort of falls back into being Maritza. Like I've watched this episode at least four times and every time it just breaks my heart. Uh, yeah. and, and likewise, Visitor is, this is maybe the most intense that we've seen Kira, uh, certainly at this point in the show and, and maybe ever. And likewise, there are so many big emotions that she could easily veer into chewing scenery, feeling overly labored, and instead you buy Kira's conviction at the same time. That, Like you say, that transition she goes through makes her ultimate resolution of it meaningful because you've seen where she's come from emotionally to reach that point. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, chop it in half uh, and let each of them take part of it home. I totally agree. <laughs> Not because you said it first, <laughs> but I had both. But but I also for the Shatner now, I I put Harris Eulen as the winner for the Shatner because he really had to go for it. And I I definitely thought about a few good men a little bit in the especially in the they were bloody, but they felt clean moment and just that whole thing. Um, and that again, the Shatner, for those of you out there who are unclear, does not mean bad acting because one, I don't believe William Shatner is Captain Kirk was giving a bad performance. I'm just, I'm just saying two it's for when you really go for it. So <laughs> Star Trek is about big. It, it can be melodramatic and you're trying to convey this weird stuff, try to make it feel real. And I think sometimes you can go really big and break it. And sometimes you can go really big and it works. And I think this is definitely a time where going big really makes it work. Um, I do have an honorable mention, but do you have any other, person you want to mention for it uh, the only other person i would mention is the town drunk 
He's That's definitely <laughs> doing that big community theater, like, oh, no, get me out of here. And like, yeah. because he was a Cardassian and it's very. A hundred percent. It's always tough more. to act drunk. Yes. He's the more obvious choice. But I really think Harris Yulin is playing a character who's acting. So it's inherently in the role that this guy's got to act big. He's playing a guy playing a guy. So. That's why I, I'm like, and he does it so well that I didn't want to give it to the drunk just for giving a, a stereotypical drunk performance. It's very hard to act drunk. Uh, what did Burt Young say? Was it Burt Young for, you know, playing in Rocky? Um, that the key to acting drunk was that you're playing someone who's trying not to come off as drunk. Ah, I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, what part of this will they teach at Starfleet Academy? I think they're definitely going to teach about Kalanora as part of the Bajoran <laughs> occupation. That's true. I think that's fair. It was a little uh, weird that none of them knew what that was. The Starfleet yeah, I guess people. A fair point. Uh, you, you get the impression that this is an important cultural touchstone to the uh, uh, Bajoran freedom fighters, but not necessarily something that was widely known outside of that corridor. Like it seems like a very you know people who. Uh, where a part of this particular mine accident have a particular syndrome that emerged from it, but not necessarily one that's widely known or widespread. But you think it'd at least be in the database. I guess it is. I think Bashir finds it, but just doesn't right. know about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, what did you have? So the one that stood out to me is Cisco having to balance the diplomatic requirements of Cardassian stonewalling, uh, Bajoran wanting uh, extradition and Federation standards for how you, you know, let civil investigations move forward. So I think if they're going to teach anything, it's the like, how do you satisfy three contradictory uh, justice regimes all at the same time? Yeah, that's a good one. I, I would imagine this that there's very little precedent for, I'm sure the Federation has managed, Starfleet has managed foreign stations before, but the, the Cardassians are the factor that is unique, I would imagine, uh, with the occupation, but also just like the, the peace with the Cardassians, such as it is, is frail all the time. Yeah. There is almost not a plot hole. I guess modern audiences would say it's a plot hole, but uh, Gold Ducat puts it on Cisco. He says, if I'm holding you personally responsible if anything happens to this Cardassian citizen. And then he's killed. And then there's no like actual repercussion <laughs> later on. But I actually had a thought about that because I was like, oh, well, this guy was pretending to be a great man. So in Cardassian law, he was a liar and a mm. criminal. And so he kind of basically got what he deserved and they would consider the matter closed. Like this person was a nutcase and got what was coming in. Like this person thinks that the Cardassians did something wrong on Bajor. You know what I mean? Like he stood yeah. against the, the orthodoxy. So they would excommunicate him effectively. So. Um, it actually has a pat ending. Even Cisco's off the hook. There's no cultural, <laughs> no political issue with the Cardassians. Um, could this episode have been hornier and would that have made it better? No, that would have been weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't. There's a lot of Star Trek episodes where I think that's true. I don't know if that's one where we really needed this here. All right. So, Andrew, Trek, marry or kill duet. This is an easy marry for me, I think, especially <laughs> in in Deep Space Nine's first season, where it's still figuring out its voice to some degree. This is a, a true high watermark and, and definitely the highest that the show hit after the pilot uh, in that season. So 
I, I would marry this one in a heartbeat. I strongly agree, and there are people who would still argue it's the best episode of the series. I'm not sure I agree with that, but that doesn't mean that it's not one of the best, and certainly in Star Trek history. You know, you mentioned Anna Visitor. If you were to like do a ranking, this is a very convoluted ranking, of the best episodic performances by a main crew member across all the shows, mm-hmm. this has got to be up there. I mean, this is a, a transformative performance from her that I'm not sure we really get later on. We get, I mean, she's great. I, I love her. Major Kira is one yeah. of my favorite characters in fiction and, and certainly in Star Trek, but like, there's just something about it. Like she really, she took the oath, right? <laughs> and she really stuck to it in this one. It was, yeah. it was really strong. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a wonderfully done episode. Very powerful packs, a lot of relevant uh, relevance, even now. Which in a way is a little sad, I feel like. But at the same time, here <laughs> it's good that we have some of these stories out there for us to reference and see again. Uh, Andrew, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, absolutely. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for having me, Brian. It is great to get to gab about one of my favorite shows and one of my favorite franchises. Uh, and would encourage folks who would like to continue the conversation, uh, please do check out my piece at my Substack, which is called In Full Bloom. Uh, and the easiest way to find it is just my name, andrewbloom.substack.com. Uh, you can also find reviews from me for every new Star Trek episode coming out. There are count them five series that are producing episodes at this point, uh, all covering them at thespool.net. So please, please, please do check that out. And you'll have an opportunity to hear from my colleague not too long from now. Uh, and you can also find me on pretty much any social media out there. Uh, just search Andrew Bloom. On Facebook, I'm Andrew Bloom. On uh, Blue Sky, I'm Andrew Bloom. And on um Instagram, I am underscore Andrew Bloom. So please, uh, happy to talk Trek with anybody and really glad, uh, really glad to be with you, Brian. Thanks so much for being on, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Uh, and next week, our two-hander theme will continue as we look at Let That Be Your Last Battlefield from the original series. Thanks for listening. And until next week, TMK out. TMK out.